And we're going to now look at the book of Colossians as we start our new sermon series looking through this incredible book. And as you're turning to Colossians 1, the theme of the book is that of the supremacy of Christ, how Jesus is supreme. He is the only God. He is the ruler of all rulers, the king of all kings. And as I thought about the word supreme, I I thought about two things. And you pizza lovers are going to thank me for this first one. You know, supreme pizza, the supreme pizza, what's on the supreme pizza? It's full, everything, the works is on the supreme pizza. And after you eat a slice, you're pretty full because of all what's on it. That makes me think about the supremacy of Christ and the fullness of God is found in him. Colossians 2.9 describes how the fullness of deity dwells within Christ, among Christ, that he represents Christ or God because he indeed is God. The fullness of God dwells in him. So he's supreme. The second word I think about is not just supreme pizza, but I think about supreme court. What is the supreme court? It's the highest court that is in our country. It's the, the ultimate court that is in our country. And as I think about Jesus, again, the highest of, of all highs as far as the, the ruler of all, of all rulers, the king of all kings, the God of all gods. He's the only God, the one true God. And he reigns supreme. He is sufficient. He is more than enough for us. As we journey through this letter, you're going to see that theme throughout supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. So this morning, we're gonna look at the first 14 verses, Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit." And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Some of you heard this story from me a couple years ago, but I went to Salt Lake City and... I, I met several Mormons when I visited and toured the, the tabernacle in Salt Lake City, the Mormon tabernacle. And when I was there, I met about four young adults who were working at the tabernacle, and they were all single young adults. And I started to talk to them, and I told them I'm a Christian pastor, and of course they said, okay, what does this mean? This might be interesting. And, and we start having a conversation with one another. 
The first question I asked was, what do you think about Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And I said, oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We believe he's a prophet, that he's the greatest teacher of all. We believe in Jesus. And I said, okay, uh, do you believe the Bible as, as the word of God, as, as the true source of all wisdom? Yeah, yeah, we believe the Bible for sure. We read the Bible and we, we learn about Jesus through the Bible. And then I ask a question, well, well, is there anything else that you read or anything else that might be just as important as the Bible? And they said, oh, yeah, for sure, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is something in addition to the Bible that we read in, in correlation to the Bible, and it has the same authority. And I said, well, that's interesting because what I know about the Book of Mormon, what I know about the Bible is there are differences when you read the two books. And, and then I went on to say, now, uh, all of you are, are single, I've noticed, right? Because they were talking about before, they were talking about uh, how they were excited about getting married. And I said, oh, yeah, we're single, but we're excited about getting married. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, because the Book of Mormon tells us that when we die, and if we're married, we'll still be married in the afterlife. And I said, well, that's interesting because Jesus tells us in the gospel that when we die, we won't be married in the afterlife. And they said, really? And I said, yeah, 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 there's a difference from what Jesus taught about marriage in the afterlife and what the Book of Mormon t- teaches. And they said, oh, we didn't realize that. And I said, well, there's also some other differences of the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And I went into several of the other differences about how we view Jesus, how we view God the Father, how we view the Holy Spirit, how we view sin. We went into all this. And, and finally, after about 10 or 15 minutes, they, they started kind of getting frustrated. I wasn't trying to frustrate them. I was just trying to lead them to the truth in a loving way. And they said, well, you know what? Okay, we, we, we can see that we might disagree on some things, but, but we had this experience one time where an angel revealed himself to us, and it changed us. And we just hope that you have that experience too. So we're going to start praying that you will have the vision that we had from these angels and that you will have a deeper knowledge of who God is. And I thought, that's interesting. So I then started talking more rational, okay, what about the truth? And, and I went into all these other topics, and they kept going back to that same answer after that. They said, no, you know, we just had this experience. It's a super spiritual experience, and we really hope that you'll have that too. And until you experience it, you won't fully understand spiritual wisdom like we have. Well, I, I left that, that night really discouraged for them, heartbroken for them, because I thought, wow, they're adding to the Bible, And Jesus is not enough for them. They need more than Jesus. He's not sufficient enough. He's not supreme to them. But they they need a deeper spiritual experience than what they would say he can provide. I was heartbroken for them. And I still am today. I'm heartbroken for the, the Mormon faith because of these things. As I thought about that example, I thought about Colossians. Because this is what was going on in the days of Paul and in the city of Colossae. In Colossae, you had these Christians who heard the gospel. They understood it. They came to faith in Christ. They had a vibrant faith. And slowly over time came these false teachers that were entering their Christian circles. And they started teaching them what we call Gnosticism. Gnosticism means to know or knowledge. And these false teachers known as Gnostics were people in the know. They were of the know. And what they taught was is that Jesus was important and you need to add to him to have 
deeper spiritual knowledge and to gain that insight that you need. They would mix together Jewish tradition with pagan rituals, and they would say, this is what you need to know. And if you have this experience like we have, then you'll have a fuller knowledge of the afterlife and of a higher power. This is what you'll hear about in the next 10 weeks as the people of Colossae were being infiltrated with this false teaching of Gnosticism. And so as Paul's writing this letter, we see in these first 14 verses, we, we see that he's praying for the people because he knows that these young adults, many of the young, young adults and young believers, they were being led astray by this Gnostic movement. And he had a major concern for them. And so the first 14 verses is he prays for them. He first praises the Lord because he hears a glowing review, a glowing report from Epaphras about the people. But the second thing we're going to learn is that he had a growing, there was a growing concern. And he prayed for just their safety and that they would not mix different philosophies and worldviews in their Christian circles. So the first eight verses, we learn about a growing review, or it it was a raving review from a man named Epaphras. Paul, when he wrote this, he described himself as an apostle of Jesus. He also was with Timothy when he wrote this letter. He was in prison. This is one of his prison epistles that he wrote. Paul never went to Colossae. He didn't plant the church in Colossae. But verses 7 and 8 tell us that Epaphras played a major role in that. Epaphras was a a friend and a a fellow worker of Paul and Timothy, and Epaphras heard about Paul being in prison, and so he went to visit and encourage Paul. And when he went to, to Paul in prison, he told Paul this glowing review of the people of Colossae, this church that Epaphras helped plant. And in this glowing review, there were three words that that stood out to me about the believers in in Colossae: faith, love, and hope. Verse three through five, Paul wrote these words to the people of Colossae. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There was a a glowing review from Epaphras saying, these people, these Colossians, they, they heard the gospel. You see that in verse six and seven. They heard it, they understood it, and now they're displaying faith, love, and hope to one another. It's remarkable. So Paul, when he heard these words from Epaphras, he was very encouraged. And he wrote this letter to the Colossians, just praising the Lord uh, for their faith, their robust faith. Notice those three words again, faith, love, and hope. That's a triad, a common triad that Paul uses in his letters. Uh, First Thessalonians 1.3, he said these words about the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is, faith, love, and hope. 1 Corinthians 13, many of you know this passage, the love passage. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three remain. The greatest of these is love. So three different times, Paul emphasizes about three different groups of believers, their faith, their love, and their hope. Now what is faith? Faith, the Greek word pistis, It means to be persuaded that something is true. And it's not just knowing that something's true. It's living out on it. It's acting upon that truth. When you leave here today, you may go to a restaurant 
And when you go to a restaurant, you're pretty comfortable going to restaurants because you know that they have passed certain inspections. And you're pretty confident that what you eat will not make you sick. That's faith because of the evidence, right? You've maybe gone to this restaurant before or even a restaurant you haven't visited. You trust that what they're serving you will be healthy and will not make you sick. So you eat it. You drive on bridges all the time. Why do you drive on bridges? Well, you drive because you know that there was a lot of work done beforehand in preparing uh, this bridge. And you also know thousands upon thousands of people have driven over the bridge. And so you drive over the bridge. You have faith in that. In the same way, the people of Paul's day in Colossae, they had faith in Jesus. It says faith in Jesus. He was the object of their faith that they centered themselves in. They were grounded in. He was the foundation for them. And they rested on him. They relied upon him. And it showed to the people in the community that they loved Christ because of their faith. Their faith in him. Charles Spurgeon, he, he gave an example one time about two men that were on a boat. And they were on this boat and all of a sudden there was this, this uh, the, 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 the water just, the rapids were increasing. And they were losing control and they lost their oars. And, and, and before they knew it, there was a waterfall coming and approaching. And they thought, we are about to go to our death as we, as we come across this waterfall. Well, Fortunately, by God's grace, there were some friends on the shoreline and they were yelling out, hey, catch this rope. And so they kept throwing this rope out and they kept throwing and finally one of them grabbed the rope and he jumped in the water and they pulled him to the shore and he made it safely. The other one, he didn't reach for the rope, but instead he saw this massive log that was next to the boat and he said, if I jump on this log, it will lead me. I can maybe swim to the shore and it will lead me to safety. So he jumps on this log and it doesn't lead him to safety. It leads him straight to the waterfall and he dies. What was Spurgeon's point? He said, the rope is that of faith. It's the instrument that leads us to Christ on the shoreline. He's the object. We have faith where we reach out to him. And he reels us in. That's the point Spurgeon was making. But many people in Paul's day and many people in our day, we're putting our faith in something other than Christ. We're putting our faith in something that's moving. And so we, we jump on it thinking, well, that's the source of all hope. And where does it lead us? But it leads us astray. Paul was saying, I applaud you, Colossians, because your faith is grounded in Christ. It's not grounded in false teachings. It's not grounded in anything else. It's grounded in him. So keep it up. Keep it up is what Paul was saying. The second word he uses is love. But notice he, he describes how they had love for each other. They, they loved one another because they had the same faith. They were unified in their faith. And so they loved one another. Uh, yesterday morning, really early in the morning, about 5 a.m., I get a text message from Vernon Guthrie. Vernon is our founding elder of this church 30 years ago. He helped start this church with, with many others years ago. Vernon lost his wife, Linda, 2.20 in the morning. Uh, yesterday, about four of us elders, we went to Vernon's house and we prayed for him. And one thing that he shared was, he said, you know, I've been very, very thankful for not only our family, our immediate family being here, but I've been very thankful for our church family because they've really shown up in number. They've been praying for us. They've been here the last 16 months as she's fought this cancer, and I'm very thankful, and I have really felt the love from this congregation. 
You know, Vern and Linda have loved us well for 28 years. Here's our opportunity to love them well, particularly Vernon and his family, his kids. We'll learn more about the funeral later this week, so you'll hear about it probably tomorrow. But just be praying for him. This is what the church does when we go through tragedy like the Guthrie's just went through. We love one another. We're there for each other. We pray for each other. We bring meals to each other. We, we send messages of support to one another. We care for each other. That's what the people of Colossae were doing. And Paul was applauding them saying, your love is evident. It's obvious that you love Jesus because you love one another. And then the third word he used, go back to verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Notice the term laid up means reserved. You know, faith and hope are kind of intertwined because if you hope for something, it will strengthen your faith. It will strengthen your faith as you hope for something to come. Our hope as believers is heaven. And as we hope for heaven, it will strengthen our faith today. It will keep us grounded in Christ as we are reminded of our inheritance that is in heaven waiting for us. There was a man, uh, Eugene Ladd, and he was a multimillionaire living in New York. One day he went to East Harlem and he went to this middle school and this particular class had 59 students in it. And anytime they brought in guest speakers, the, the kids would, disrupt, would be disruptive. They wouldn't be listening. They wouldn't be paying attention. So this millionaire said, I have no idea what to say to keep these kids uh, attentive and to keep them focused on me. So he said, you know what I did? I just went up to them and I said, kids, stay in school, stay in school, stay in school. And he said, they started kind of dozing off. And then he said, and if you stay in school, I'll pay for your entire college. <laughs> and they all said, <laughs> they're all, all their heads lifted up and said, what? This guy's going to pay for our college? Is he serious? He said, yeah, I'm dead serious. If you stay in school, I will pay for all of your colleges. Out of the 59 classmates that day, 90% of them graduated high school, finished college, and the man paid for their college. Incredible story. Why did those kids make it? They had hope. They may have never had this kind of hope before in their entire life, and now they were giving hope in the future, and it made them work hard, work hard to get there. We have hope, believers. We have an inheritance that never perishes, spoils, or fades. It's an inheritance that is kept waiting for us in heaven. And so because we have that hope, how should we then live today? We should work for the Lord with all that we have. We should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that's what the people of Colossians were doing. They had this faith, this hope, and this love in Christ. And as a, result, as a result, they were walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So there was this raving review from Epaphras about the Colossians and their faith. But as you look now at verses 9 through 14, you'll see that there's this growing concern that was taking place that Paul was praying about uh, on, on their behalf. And this growing concern had to deal with this Gnosticism that was taking place in their community. Verse nine, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
Paul was praying that the believers of Colossae would grow in knowledge of the will of God and of his spiritual understanding. He wanted the Colossians to fully grasp who Jesus is. He wanted them to experience Jesus in that way. And the way you do it is the Holy Spirit, he reveals truth to us, and he reveals truth to us through his word. So Paul was simply reminding them of the gospel truth, and he was encouraging them to be people of the word so that they would continue to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, the Gnostics, they were teaching that matter, anything physical or created, was evil. They were teaching that our bodies were sinful and that they were evil. And they were teaching that God did not create the world, but instead he created all of these lesser gods until finally the, the furthest God that he created that was from him, he inherited some, a little bit of evil. He was able to have evil because he was so far away from God. And this, they called it emanation, this lesser God was then able to create an evil world. And they taught, the Gnostics taught, that Jesus did not inherit, he did not, he did not get a physical body because it was sinful, and so Jesus was a phantom-like ghost. So these Gnostics were coming in and saying, if you believe these things, you'll have a, a deeper knowledge of who God is, who this higher power is. And by the way, you need to self, you need to self mutilate, your, mutilate yourself. It's called asceticism. And they said, you need to believe in angelic beings and you need to do these Jewish rituals. And if you do these things, you'll gain more knowledge of who God is. You just have to do, do, do. And Paul's saying, believers, don't buy into these lies of Gnosticism. They claim to be people of the know. They claim to have superior knowledge than you, but they don't. They're being led astray. I learned this in my church history class in seminary, but in 1945, there were Gnostic scrolls that were discovered in Egypt known as Nag Hammadi. Nag Hammadi had over 50 scrolls of Gnostic writings, and it led to the modern New Age movement. Many people began to read these scrolls, and they said, oh, what's these teachings? And it led to religions like the one in California, that Hollywood uh, that many people like John Travolta uh, believe in. That, those, kind of, those kind of religions is what led from these scrolls in 1945. You know what else um, was created from these scrolls? Star Wars. Many of you love Star Wars. You love your Mandalorian. You love all the Star Wars movies, and they're good. They're good. I like Star Wars movies. But George Lucas, he read these scrolls. And if you think about it, think about the force. May the force be with you. The force is an impersonal God. Where did he get that idea from? He got it from the Gnostic writings. Darth Vader was, was half evil, half good. Where did he get that? He got that from Gnostic writings. Luke Skywalker, where did he get that? Well, he's kind of a Christ figure. Star Wars came out of these writings and many other false religions is what George Lucas read about, and he created Star Wars. This is a genius idea, but it came from heresy. I bring this up because this is happening in our day, and even though you and I don't necessarily believe in Gnosticism, we're filling our minds with stuff, and at the same time, we're hearing people constantly talking about karma, higher power, energy, yin and yang, 
I hear these, I hear these phrases all the time, all the time. As a chaplain, you know, as I'm out talking to people in the community, this is what people are believing. What is it? It's Gnosticism, modern Gnosticism. You know, the, the people of the day of Paul and the people of our day, they don't believe Jesus is enough. They believe you have to have Jesus plus something and it will equal enough. That's the Gnostic philosophy. You and I, we may not be tempted to believe in all these different ideas that are thrown out there. Scientology was the religion, by the way. It came to me. I knew it would. We don't, we don't necessarily believe these things. We know what is true, but, but let me ask you a hard question. What do you add to Jesus in your life? Is it your 401k? Jesus plus my 401k is everything. Is it your boat? Is it your hobby? Is it your relationships? Is it your career and your identity in that? What have you added on to your faith that doesn't need to be added on to? What have you added on to Jesus to make you fulfilled? Well, my friends, I just encourage you, be reminded Jesus is more than enough. He is sufficient. We don't need to add to him. We don't need anything but him. He is more than enough. And that's what Paul was praying that the Colossians would know, that they would experience a deeper knowledge of who Jesus is and that Jesus would be more than enough. The second thing he prayed for is not just for that they would grow in knowledge, but that they would grow in godliness. And this is where the manner of worthy, verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing good fruit in every work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, the, the, the Hebrews, in the Hebrew mind, knowledge and conduct were bound together. But in the Gnostic culture, they believed that teaching was highly speculative and it wasn't connected to living. And so because they believed that your bodies were evil, they would claim that you can do whatever you want in your body. You can think whatever you want to think, but you can be whoever you want to be in your body. No harm, no foul. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. What you believe should translate in how you behave. And so you are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing the Lord. So just as Jesus loved and served others, so we are called to love and serve others. And you know what the best way or the best thing we can do to grow in godliness is to have a heart of thanksgiving, is to have a mind of gratitude. And this is where he finishes 12 and 13, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of, of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What Paul is referring to here is, as believers, we should be screaming with thanksgiving. Our lives should be flowing with thanksgiving. The Puritans said we should have a continual thanksgiving feast, being thankful for what God has done by rescuing us from the domain of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of light. So my question to you is, when's the last time you thank God for changing you, for saving you from your sins and from hell? When's the last time? It's been a little while for me until I read this and I thought, oh, I was convicted. Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving me. This is the big picture. Thank you, Lord. But so often we live our lives not thankful for what God has done. I, I close with this story. 
Northwestern University, years ago in Northwestern, they had this, these students who were trained to save people out on the ocean or in the lake. And that was part of their skill set. And, and, and they had this life-saving team that assisted passengers on Lake Michigan boats. Well, in 1860, uh, there was this boat, this massive boat called the Lady Elgin. And it floundered near the campus and it, and it had a malfunction or something, and it began to sink. Well, there was a student who had been trained at Northwestern. His name was Edward Spencer, and he ended up rescuing 17 people that day from their death. But as he rescued them, he got hurt, and he ended up dying just a few years later. Do you know that Edward Spencer did not receive one thank you card or one visit from any of these people that he saved? He was willing to risk his life. He gave his life ultimately so these people could be saved. But not one of them thanked him. Believers, as you think about that example, think about Christ. He didn't just willingly sacrifice himself. He gave himself so that we could be forgiven of our sins. We could be bought back. He uses the term redemption. We could be bought back. We could be under his lordship and his kingdom. So with that, we are to be thankful. And as we reflect upon our own salvation and what he's done for us, it will translate into a life of thanksgiving. And the more thankful we are for what he's done for us, the more we will grow in godliness and in knowledge of who Jesus is.